welcome to the Game Before the Money podcast. Celebrating pro and college football history, one legend at a time. This episode, Denver Broncos Ring of Fame member, Carl Mecklenburg. Hi, everybody. I'm Jackson Michael, author of The Game Before the Money, Voices of the Men Who Built the NFL. That's published by the University of Nebraska Press. The book is an oral history featuring interviews with NFL greats like Frank Gifford, Bob Greasy, and the first member of the Denver Broncos, Goose Gosselin. And that brings us to our guest for this show, Broncos linebacker Carl Mecklenburg, Those of you who followed those great Denver Broncos teams of the 1980s certainly remember Mecklenburg, who was the leader of that defense and lined up all over the front seven. When opposing quarterbacks walked up to the line of scrimmage, their first assignment was to figure out where Carl Mecklenburg was and plan the play accordingly. Carl Mecklenburg made six Pro Bowls and was All-Pro three times. And remember, this was during kind of a golden age of linebackers. When Lawrence Taylor, Derek Thomas, Mike Singletary, Andre Tippett, and Harry Carson, all Hall of Famers, were in their primes. Despite all those legendary players playing at the same time, Carl Mecklenburg still made All-Pro three times. And he certainly was a huge part of the Denver Broncos getting to the Super Bowl in three out of four seasons. He's going to share with us some great stories about those Broncos teams, and he's even going to take us onto the field and into the locker room for some of the most historic playoff moments in the 1980s, including John Elway's famous drive in the 1986 AFC Championship game and the legendary fumble in the 1987 AFC Championship. He's also going to share with us some great insight into two legendary defensive coordinators, Joe Collier and Wade Phillips. Carl Mecklenburg's road to the NFL wasn't paved in gold. In fact, he overcame several obstacles just to play college football. His story really is one of accomplishment through dedication and hard work and is inspirational to anybody. Carl works as a motivational speaker today, and we'll touch on that a bit later and tell you how you and your company can book Carl Mecklenburg as a motivational speaker. Carl's first love of sports began, like many of us, playing sports in the neighborhood. Just as a kid, I loved monkeying around with the neighborhood kids. We played street hockey and we played wiffle ball, and I got involved with the youth league uh, football basketball, hockey, baseball, anything I could sign up for, I was doing it. And like many of us, Carl grew up an NFL fan. He grew up in Minnesota and naturally cheered for the Minnesota Vikings and their famous Purple People Eater defense. Yeah, I was a Vikings fan. Carl Eller, Alan Page, that group, uh, Marshall, those were my heroes, particularly Alan Page. Alan Page was kind of undersized like I was and used smarts as much as he did strength to do his job. Earlier, I mentioned that Carl overcame several obstacles on his journey to the NFL. He talks about his high school career and his college options. Neither were very typical for future all-pro linebackers. 
Well, my <laughs> my high school career was uh, was interesting. In ninth grade, I was at Washburn High School in Minneapolis, playing on the ninth grade team. As a sophomore, we moved. So as a junior, I played junior varsity. I didn't make the varsity team at uh, at Edina West. I was playing at Edina West High School. It was a suburb outside of Minneapolis. I played JV as a senior in high school. I was All-State as a tight end and as a defensive end, but I was only six feet tall and 200 pounds. I I wasn't big enough to play major college football. I got an offer for a one-third scholarship from Augustana College in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I went there on that one-third scholarship. When they offered me that one-third scholarship, it was late in the recruiting season, and they were, you know, claiming they didn't have enough to to give me a full scholarship. But if I performed for them and do well at, at Augie, they'd uh, give me a full scholarship later. By his sophomore year at Augustana, Carl became a defensive playmaker through a combination of hard work and a growth spurt. I had grown three inches and forty pounds my first year of college. So all of a sudden, instead of a six-foot-tall, 200-pound defensive lineman, he had a 6'3", 240 defensive lineman, and I was much better. Uh, I led the team in sacks. I played every down on defense. Carl Mecklenburg's collegiate career appeared going in an upward trend. Mecklenburg's path was about to meet some adversity, however. At the end of the season, we had that debriefing session that every coach has. He called me into the office. I'm expecting he's going to give me that full scholarship we talked about in my living room. Uh, he sat me down and he said, Carl, we know your dad's a doctor. He can afford this school. We're going to take away your one-third scholarship and use it to bring somebody else in. In situations where adversity appears, you will hear a similar message from a lot of successful people. That message often boils down to things such as focus on what you can control, and if you don't like your current situation, then change it. You'll also hear people say that they weren't above doing even the lowest task on the job board just to get their foot in the door. Mecklenburg did just that, and the way he responded to the news of his losing that one-third scholarship set him on a new course. I left Augustana, and I walked on at the University of Minnesota. Uh, When you transfer between four-year colleges, you're ineligible to play for that first year which can certainly practice, so my job that year was to be a live blocking dummy. I'm uh, pretending to be the guy from Michigan or Ohio State or whoever we're playing that week. If I want to eat with the team, I've got to sweep up the weight room or sweep up the locker room. Usually they put your jersey number on your laundry bag. The number on my laundry bag was number 110. (laughs) Right, there's no 110 in football, but that was me. (laughs) When I introduced Carl's journey to success at the top of the program. I wasn't kidding when I said that it's a statement to hard work and dedication. This future All-Pro wasn't above cleaning the locker room simply to get his cleats onto the practice field. And being handed the number 110, that's enough to dishearten even some of the most talented athletes. Mecklenburg worked hard and his fortunes changed. But I was a great practice player, and as soon as I was eligible for a full scholarship, they gave me one because I was eating up their guys in practice. My junior year at Minnesota, I led the Big Ten in sacks, tied with Andre Tippett. The Golden Gophers moved into the new Metrodome during Carl's senior season. The team didn't perform as well, and he tells us how that affected his NFL draft status. Once again, Carl Mecklenburg pushed himself forward despite the heavy odds that faced him. 
senior year, uh, we were bad. We, we won our first three games. We had just moved to the Metrodome, and the Metrodome turf was really bad at first. They hadn't, hadn't figured it out yet. We had a bunch of guys hurt. And so we, we won our first three and lost our last eight. Um, when you're behind all the time, nobody passes, so I didn't ever get a chance to rush the passer. So my draft status dropped a bit, and I ended up a 12th-round draft pick for the Broncos. Uh, 310th pick of the draft, 20 guys uh, away from Mr. Irrelevant. That's the last guy picked. So I was not your five-star guy. I was a guy who uh, had overcome and overcome and overcome. And, and truthfully, a lot of those five-star guys get to training camp in the NFL, and, and they don't know how to overcome. They've never had to. They've always been the best player on their team. For me, I got to training camp, and I said, oh, here I go again. <laughs> right? I'm going to figure out a way. Remember how his first number in Minnesota was number 110 and how hard he needed to work to get a scholarship? Mecklenburg found himself in a similar situation when he arrived at the Denver Broncos training camp. Jersey numbers just seemed to keep popping up as part of his story. You know, actually, my, my, I had the same number as a starter. That's never a good sign when you get there. <laughs> I had the same number as a starter, and they switched me to another number, and then they fired somebody and gave me his number, so I ended up with 77. That was the third number I had uh, during training camp that year, and when they switched me to linebacker, they tried to change my number again, and I'm like, no, nah, my mom's not going to be able to figure out which one I am. I'm going to keep 77. <laughs> so uh, so that was uh, that's how I ended up with... 77 playing linebacker. I was drafted as a nose guard. I played nose guard through that first training camp till I tore a ligament in my elbow, and you can't play nose guard with one arm and a hook, so they've moved me out to defensive end, and, and I made the team as a third-down pass rusher and a special teams guy. Carl told me that the Broncos' ownership at the time, and this was before Pat Bolin took over, were interested in the team as a business investment and weren't as focused on football. The general manager looked to cut salary costs. A lot of veterans that helped the Broncos make it to Super Bowl XII just a few years prior found themselves out of a job. Mecklenburg tells us that 13 rookies made the team his first year and fills us in on how the remaining veterans responded to their longtime friends being cut. We had 13 rookies make it that year in 1983. Rookies are cheap, right? <laughs> <laughs> So I was a, I was able to make the team, and I had made plays, and it was uh, right place at the right time for me. Truthfully, that doesn't happen very often, but they were looking for somebody at base salary who could make plays, and I was that guy. So I was able to hang on. And the other thing interesting about it was those veteran guys, the guys that had played in the Super Bowl already and just had seen 13 of their teammates get fired because they were trying to sell the team. Instead of taking it personally and taking it out on us, they became mentors. And I owe a lot of my success to to those guys, to the Barney Shavis and Ruben Carters and that group that really took us under their wing and, and taught us not only how to be great football players, but taught us how to be men. And that, that was a it was a, a pretty amazing thing to see because it was not fair. It was it was a it was a rotten deal. A lot of a lot of their friends had just been fired. That tells you a lot about the leadership that was on the football field for the Denver Broncos at that time. These guys were guys who were part of the original Orange Crush defense that played with Mecklenburg during that 1983 season. Guys like Barney Chavis, Reuben Carter, Randy Gratishar, and Tom Jackson. This also brings us 
to another person in the story that is one of those guys who stayed out of the limelight but was a very important figure in some of the most historic years of two franchises. The man's name is Joe Collier. He was a defensive coach for the back-to-back AFL champion Buffalo Bills in the mid-1960s and eventually led them to an AFL championship game as their head coach. Collier later worked for the Broncos and was the architect of the Orange Crush defense. He also played a huge part in Carl Mecklenburg's personal success. Mecklenburg opens up about Collier's leadership as Denver's defensive coordinator and Collier's willingness to adapt his defense to his players' strengths. Joe Collier was a defensive assistant for the Denver Broncos for 20 years. Five different head coaches came and went while he was still on that staff. Unbelievable understanding of football. And this is a characteristic I think most leaders should look for. If you have the ability to look at somebody, study them, and figure out things they didn't even know about themselves as far as talents and abilities and skills. I'd never played linebacker in my life until my third year in the NFL. The Broncos drafted me as a lineman. I've been a lineman all the way through. Uh, at every level of football, I'd always been a lineman. Joe looked at me and said, you know what, yeah, you're not fast, but you're quick, and you make decisions quick. A lot of defensive coordinators would not have moved me to linebacker just because they'd have been afraid I'd get matched up on a speed back or on a speed tight end and get beat deep. Instead, Joe looked at me and said, this is a guy who can make a bunch of plays. He's a guy that uh, is a great tackler, a guy that uh, reads things fast. It's my job to figure out how to put a defense around him that protects him from getting beat deep. I'm going to use the strength of the individual to help the team and use the strengths of the team to cover for the weaknesses of the individual. And that's that's what, what great leaders do. Mecklenburg worked as the major chess piece in Joe Collier's defensive schemes. He stood as one of the most versatile playmakers of the era. The game programs always listed him as a linebacker. In reality, Mecklenburg played pretty much every position in Denver's front seven. I got to play seven different defensive positions and a few times in a single game. Uh, He would move me inside, outside, up, down, back, forth, uh, based on uh, where he thought the ball was going based on what he thought the best matchup situations would be, based on trying to confuse the other offense. If you've watched football closely for a long time, you likely know that quarterbacks try to read defensive formations as teams line up for a play. Quarterbacks opposing the Denver Broncos went to the line of scrimmage with a prioritized objective. Find Carl Mecklenburg, point him out, and change the play accordingly. It's hard to fully put his presence into perspective if you didn't have a chance to see him play on a regular basis, but Carl shared with us this great story about a game against the Chargers that might help put things in perspective. One game, we're playing in San Diego, and someone has stole my jersey. There was no number 77 jersey when I got there, so I wore Bruce Klosterman's jersey. He was inactive that day. So they tore his name off the back, wrote my name on the back with a Sharpie, and I'm wearing number 93, and the the Chargers are all upset because I'm out there wearing a different number than they practiced pointing at all week long trying to get ready for the game. Carl Mecklenburg was a defensive playmaker. Sacks, forced fumbles, and hustle were his forte on Sundays. In 1985, he had four sacks against the New Orleans Saints in Week 2. 
and I had been sick all week. I had been literally in the hospital. Uh, I had the flu bad. I'd been, you know, I got IVs at halftime. Sometimes when you're sick or you're injured or something, it makes you focus so much better. Ironically, when you look at today's COVID thing, the quarterback missed the next week because he had the flu. <laughs> I was on him so much, he had the flu the next week. Four sacks in one game is pretty remarkable. But what is even more remarkable is that Mecklenburg did it again that same season. That's right, four sacks in one game, twice in one year. The second time came in week 13 against Pittsburgh. Carl's not shy about giving defensive coordinator Joe Collier credit for his success. That was the first time I ever played at outside linebacker. Joe said, you know, we've got a matchup thing here. Uh, Carl, you're going to play outside linebacker this week and move me out there. I was the defensive player of the week that week in the NFL. They had a guy playing tackle at that point that that couldn't handle me, and Joe knew it. And he said, all right, we're going to we're going to put you out there and, and, and let you do your thing. He was an amazing leader to play for. Magdalenburg totaled 13 sacks in 1985, which tied him with Lawrence Taylor and Reggie White for that season. And speaking of Reggie White, White also had four sacks in one game twice the next season, in 1986. For a long time, Reggie White and Carl Mecklenburg were the only two players since the NFL started recording sacks to have four sacks in one game two times in the same season. In 2019, Chandler Jones became the third player in history to match that standard that Carl Mecklenburg and Reggie White set in the mid-1980s. The Broncos finished 11 and 5 in 1985, but they didn't make the playoffs. The defending champion LA Raiders won the AFC West, and the Patriots and Jets both beat out Denver for the two wildcard spots. The wildcard Patriots made it all the way to the Super Bowl in 1985 before getting beat pretty handily by the Chicago Bears in Super Bowl 20. That next season, 1986, both the Broncos and the Patriots again finished the regular season at 11-5. Only this time, it was good enough to win their respective divisions. The two teams faced off in a divisional playoff at Mile High Stadium in Denver. The 1986 AFC playoffs created one of the most famous games in Denver Broncos history in the AFC Championship game at Cleveland. And that overshadows what a great game the divisional playoff against New England was and how that game makes the famous drive in the next week's AFC Championship game even more remarkable. New England jumped out to a 7-3 second quarter lead before Broncos quarterback John Elway scored on a 22-yard scramble. But it was another first-half play involving Elway that thickened the plot of the 1986 AFC playoffs. With just over a minute left in the first half, Denver led 10-7 and lined up for a third and 14 play near their own 35-yard line. Patriots Hall of Fame linebacker Andre Tippett fought off a block and crunched Elway from behind as he threw. The hit affected the throw 
and the pass veered off course. The ball was intercepted near the line of scrimmage, but even worse for the Broncos, Tippett landed hard on Elway's ankle. The Broncos' star quarterback limped off the field. Two trainers assisted him to the locker room. Doctors ruled that he had a sprained ankle and taped it up for the second half. Denver head coach Dan Reeves adjusted the Broncos' second-half offense to a run-based offense focused on Sammy Winder and Gene Lang. The Broncos and Patriots fought to a 10-10 score at halftime. The Orange Crush defense needed to make plays to win, but New England's flea flicker in the third quarter put the defending AFC champion Patriots ahead 17-13. And this brings us to two points I'd like to make about the mid-1980s Broncos that were exemplified in this game and made a huge difference. First point, the Broncos had a third and four near midfield with three seconds left in the third quarter. Elway lined up in shotgun formation. One of the Patriots jumped off sides. A penalty flag was thrown. If you watch today's game, you've probably seen Aaron Rodgers take big chances on what's often called a free play when a defender jumps off sides. John Elway perfected that move in the 1980s. Aaron Rodgers is very good at capitalizing on the free play, but John Elway was the king of the free play, especially in making plays that changed the complexion of the game. This third and four play is a great example. Elway stepped back, looked to his right, and that fake drew the safety towards that side of the field. Elway quickly turned to his left and launched the ball to receiver Vance Johnson on the other side at the goal line. A classic John Elway throw. He threw it from his own 40 to exactly the goal line. 60 yards in the air, exactly on target. Vance Johnson, who had single coverage after the safety took steps towards the other side of the field, caught the ball as he fell backwards into the end zone. It was an exceptional play on both sides of the ball as Elway perfectly placed the ball where nobody but Vance Johnson had a chance to catch it, and Johnson made a great catch. Remember, the ball traveled 60 yards in the air, and it couldn't have been thrown better. And it came on a free play. As a result, the Broncos took a 20-17 lead as the game headed into the fourth quarter. And that brings us to the second point I like to make about the mid-80s Broncos. When the Broncos had a fourth quarter lead, they would get a late pass rush that destroyed other teams' rallies. Naturally, I took the opportunity to ask Carl Mecklenburg about Denver's late pass rush. Yeah, when it's late in the game and you know the other team has to pass, that's when you have an advantage, particularly at Mile High Stadium. That's why they called it Mile High Stadium. So you knew you were a mile high. You're coming in from sea level and you're huffing and puffing. You're over there sucking on the oxygen and the big guys are on one knee. And that really gave us an advantage. And we developed that tendency and understanding that this is the time of the game that you, you do whatever you can to get to the quarterback. And I was blessed to be paired up with Rulin Jones for a long time. Rulin was as devastating a one-on-one pass rusher as I've ever seen. If you didn't double-team him, he was getting to the quarterback. I mean, he was uncanny the way he could work his way through a pass blocker, kind of like a snake or something. His body would bend in ways most people 
people's bodies don't bend, and they had to double-team them, and that would leave me one-on-one. And then I had Simon Fletcher. Simon Fletcher was an unbelievable, underrated pass rush, just kind of a, a Von Miller speed guy that could get around the corner ridiculously fast, um, and if he overplayed that, he'd come back inside with a, with a club move or a hump or a spin move and make you pay. Let's take a look at what the Broncos' pass rush did in the fourth quarter against New England in the AFC Divisional Playoffs after Denver took the lead with the John Elway to Vance Johnson touchdown. On an early fourth quarter play, Mecklenburg hurried quarterback Tony Eason from the left side and almost forced an interception. The ball bounced off the hands of a defensive back. On a third down play, Carl came again from the left side and forced Eason to step up in the pocket. Eason stumbled and he fumbled the ball. The Patriots recovered but were forced to punt. Now that's just one series. The Orange Crush even affected running plays as Ricky Hunley stopped a running play from behind the line of scrimmage on New England's next possession. Then it was the pass rush again as Freddie Gilbert chased Eason from behind and Mecklenburg blocked his path from the front. The Patriots quarterback had no chance to pass or run and Gilbert knocked him down for the sack and forced another fumble, which Eason recovered. Remember, all of this is happening in one quarter against an offensive line that made the Super Bowl the previous season. The Patriots got one last chance on offense, starting at about their own 10-yard line, still only trailing by three points. Carl talked about ruling Jones earlier, and here's where Jones made one of the biggest plays of his career. Jones blasted past the guard assigned to block him. Eason had no chance and Rulon Jones smashed into him into the end zone for a safety, giving the Broncos a five-point lead, and that iced a trip to the AFC Championship game at Cleveland as the Broncos won 22-17. Even though the 1986 AFC Championship game rightfully takes its place as one of the greatest games in Denver Broncos history, the divisional playoff the week before was a quintessential part of Denver's rise to dominance in the 1980s American Football Conference. The game stopped the franchise's four-game playoff losing streak and furthered the team's confidence from believing they had a chance to win to proving they had a chance to win it all. I'm Hal Rosenberg reporting from Cleveland's Municipal Stadium. On today's AFC Championship game between the Cleveland Browns and Denver Broncos, Broncos quarterback John Elway will play, but on a heavily taped sprained left ankle sustained in last week's game against New England. The Browns will start Bernie Kosar at quarterback. Kosar rallied the Browns to a victory The first half of the 1986 AFC Championship game ended with the same score as the Broncos-Patriots divisional game, tied at 10 points apiece at halftime. There was no huge free play to end the third quarter in this game, however. The game was tied at 13 in the fourth quarter with six minutes left. The Browns had a third and four at midfield. 
Cleveland quarterback Bernie Kosar spotted receiver Brian Brennan in man-to-man coverage with a safety at about the 15-yard line. The defender gambled on the play and fell down. Brennan caught the ball and raced untouched into the end zone. Cleveland led 20-13 and the Browns fans went crazy. Mark Mosley kicked off and the Broncos muffed the ball. Denver recovered it inside their own two-yard line. The fans at Cleveland Municipal Stadium sensed victory and a trip to the Super Bowl. This is a good place to note that sometimes the most impressive moments in football history come after a mistake or some sort of adversity. The Broncos weren't getting the ball back after a great return to their own 40 or even after a touchback. The ball was inside the two-yard line. Elway playing on a sprained ankle from the Patriots game the week before, and the Broncos facing one of the loudest crowds and most physical defenses in the NFL. Carl Mecklenburg takes us onto the sidelines and even into the huddle. We'd seen it before. I mean, that was Elway. When, when, when chips were down, when it, when it was uh, two minutes to go, when he was calling the plays, he was going to throw the ball around the yard, scramble, you know, do crazy stuff and get a fourth down conversion. And we'd seen it before. One of the real liberating things about being a teammate of John Elway as a defensive player was we could take chances. Even if we were a little bit behind at the end of the game, we knew there was a great chance that our offense was going to get it done and John was going to get it done. So uh, there was still confidence. They kicked off to us and our return guy muffed it on like the two-yard line or something. So they had to start at the two-yard line. Was still, there was confidence. Like uh, Keith Bishop, uh, our, our guard in the, in the huddle, said, we, we've got them right where we want them. That's how we felt on the sidelines, too. When the two-minute warning arrived, Elway had just completed a pass to Steve Watson to get inside Brown's territory. Elway walked off the field, the entire right side of his uniform drenched with mud, a heavily taped sprained ankle affected even his walk to the sideline to speak to coach Dan Reeves. Yet there was still an air of confidence about him and the entire Broncos team. Two plays later, the Broncos faced a third and 18. Elway completed a pass to Mark Jackson for a first down. He soon found Jackson open again. Broncos receiver Mark Jackson just caught a five-yard touchdown pass from John Elway to complete a 15-play, 98-yard drive to tie the AFC Championship game at 20. Browns quarterback Bernie Kosar, who rallied Cleveland in the final minutes of last week's divisional playoff, now has 31 seconds and two timeouts to attempt a game-winning drive, or this game will be headed into overtime. Now back to Jen Sanderson, and Ace Fittipaldi in our New York City studios. Bernie Kosar completed a four-yard pass, called timeout, and knelt down on the next play. The 1986 AFC Championship game was headed into overtime.
the Broncos lost the coin flip, so Cleveland got the ball. And back then, if in overtime, if you scored, even if it was just a, a field goal, you won the game. The other team didn't get another shot, so we had to stop them. The Browns were 3-0 and in overtime games that season, including a double overtime win over the Jets in the AFC Divisional Playoffs. The Browns started at their own 30. Their first play was what you might call a coverage sack. Kosar went back to throw, had time, but Rulon Jones eventually tackled him near the line of scrimmage. A short pass set up a third and two at the Cleveland 38. It was Carl Mecklenburg's time to shine. He lined up, hand down in the dirt, at the left of the Broncos' defensive line. Mecklenburg charged into the backfield. A Browns offensive lineman pulled specifically to block Carl. The two hit head-on. Carl powered his way through the blocker and into the ball carrier. Mecklenburg stopped a play well short of the first down, and the Denver defense forced a three-and-out on the first possession of overtime. We went three-and-out. I made a couple of the tackles and and plays there, but nobody makes plays on defense unless uh, everybody else is doing their job, too. So we rose up when it was time to rise up as a defense because we knew if we get the ball back to John, we're going to win. We don't get the ball back to John, we can't win. The Broncos drove for a game-winning field goal. It was an historic, unforgettable victory for Broncos fans. And also, an unforgettable heartbreak for fans of the Cleveland Browns. The drive, followed by the stop, helped lift the Broncos into Super Bowl XXI against the New York Giants. The Broncos were ahead in the Super Bowl 10-7 in the second quarter, before the Giants exploded for 26 unanswered points to win. Still, it was a magical season for the Broncos and their fans, and there was more yet to come. 1987 was an unusual season in the NFL. A labor dispute landed in a player's strike during the season. Each team only played 15 games, and a few of those games were played by replacement players. The Broncos finished 10-4-1 and that year and gained home field advantage throughout the AFC playoffs. Two famous playoff moments happened in Mile High Stadium, one in the divisional playoffs and one in the AFC championship game. The first came in the divisional playoff against the Houston Oilers. Oilers head coach Jerry Glanville was known as a risk taker and a maverick. Hall of Fame quarterback Warren Moon commanded the Houston offense, a run-and-shoot style offense that often featured four wide receivers. The Oilers, who today are known as the Tennessee Titans, were in their first playoff game since 1980. And that's important to note here because inexperienced playoff teams sometimes make huge mistakes. And the Houston Oilers made one early at Denver's Mile High Stadium. The Broncos' first possession ended in a punt that was downed near the Oiler five-yard line. Mecklenburg crashed through the line of scrimmage on first down and met the ball carrier in the backfield. The Oilers lined up for a second and 11 near their own goal line. They ran a play called Stagger Lee. 
That name is now synonymous with trick play calls that fail, especially in situations where it's way too dangerous for tomfoolery. Carl takes us onto the field and walks us through the play. And they were backed up. I made a tackle on, I think, about the three-yard line, and they tried to throw a double pass. The quarterback threw it out to the back, and he dropped it, and we were coming. I mean, he, he tried to pick it back up. Roland Jones rolled him. Guy came in low and, you know, knocked his hands off of it. And Steve Wilson, our defensive back, recovered the ball. The stagger Lee gaff gave Denver the ball on the Oilers' one-yard line. The Broncos soon had a 7-0 lead at home against an inexperienced playoff team. We ended up scoring a touchdown and really set the tone for that game. It was a challenge to play those run-and-shoot teams, but they took a lot of crazy chances. and That was a crazy chance that nobody should take. You never know how people are going to react under playoff pressure. It's a different level of football. That added pressure of the playoff thing makes coaches get crazy sometimes. I mean, usually when you play one of those trick plays, you want to have a certain defense you're playing it against. And if you're not in that defense, you're going to check out of it. And it's so loud in Denver, especially at the start of the game, and it's a playoff game. And there's no way those guys could have heard if there was any sort of change in plan. By halftime, the Broncos built a 24-3 lead and route to a 34-10 victory. Denver's defense forced three turnovers, including an interception by Carl Mecklenburg. The Orange Crush were on a roll, having won seven of their last eight games. And they continued that roll in the first half of the 1987 AFC Championship game at home against Cleveland. Denver built a 21-3 lead at halftime. They led 28-10 in the third quarter after an 80-yard score. The Browns were a gritty team, however, and still hurting from the previous year's AFC Championship. Cleveland scored three touchdowns, two by running back Ernest Biner, to climb back into the game. The score was tied at 31 with about five minutes left, and like the previous year's AFC Championship game, Elway led a fourth-quarter touchdown drive that ended with Sammy Winder's great catch and run. Cleveland's Bernie Kosar took the reins at the Browns' 25-yard line with just under four minutes left in the game. Ernest Biner quickly picked up 16 yards. On the play before the two-minute warning, Mecklenburg lined up on the right side of the Broncos' line and quickly pressured Kosar. Kosar's hurried throw found its way to Brian Brennan, however, who brought the ball inside the Broncos' 25-yard line. On a first and five after a penalty, Ernest Biner pounded the ball to the Broncos' 13-yard line. Cleveland knocked on the door to tie the game in hopes of sending the AFC Championship game into overtime for the second year in a row. With a minute 12 left, the Browns had the ball on Denver's 7-yard line. Kosar handed off to Biner, who dodged traffic and looked to the end zone. He has since said that he focused on safety Tony Lilly near the goal line and expected to run over him and drag him into the end zone. Biner, in fact, dragged Lilly into the end zone, and Lilly said after the game he thought Ernest Biner had scored. But Tony Lilly 
Did not know that Bronco defensive back Jeremiah Castile snuck in from the opposite side and forced a fumble. And not just any fumble. The fumble. So important that it sent Denver to the Super Bowl. So important that the 1987 AFC Championship game is simply referred to as the fumble. Carl Mecklenburg takes us onto the field and into the thick of the action. That was another amazing play. Jeremiah Castile, 165 pounds dripping wet cornerback, <laughs> you know, just a speed guy, a guy with all kinds of heart, a great player, but but not the guy you want to have trying to stop Ernest Biner on the one-yard line going in, right? And uh, Jeremiah understood. I mean, he came from the side, and instead of trying to stop Biner, he went for the ball and, and ripped the ball out, and we got on top of it. I was uh, in the middle, uh, and this play was out to the right there, and the ball came out. It, it was it was a miracle from, from our standpoint. They were just beating us up in that second half. It was an interesting game. The first half was ours. We controlled it, and the second half was theirs. But we got away with the win and had another chance at the Super Bowl. In Super Bowl XXII, the Broncos had an amazing first quarter. They scored a touchdown on their first play from scrimmage against the Washington Redskins. Denver built a 10-0 lead and almost had a chance to build on the lead as Washington fumbled the ensuing kickoff. Later, Rulon Jones and Carl Mecklenburg sacked Doug Williams. Jones picked up the loose ball, but officials ruled Williams down by contact. Williams left the game for two plays with an injured knee. Mecklenburg quickly sacked his replacement, Jay Schrader, for a big loss. And on that play, Mecklenburg literally jumped over the blocking back in mid-stride as if running the 100-meter hurdles to make the sack. Denver led 10-0 at the end of the first quarter, and Washington looked overmatched. Doug Williams returned to quarterback on the first play of the second quarter and hit receiver Ricky Sanders for an 80-yard touchdown. That touchdown pass was the first of four touchdowns Williams threw in the second quarter. Washington added a rushing touchdown and led 35-10 at halftime. The game was all but over. The Broncos lost the Super Bowl for the second year in a row, this time 42-10. The Broncos finished at 500 the next season. 1988 was Joe Collier's final season as the Broncos' defensive coordinator. Wade Phillips, son of legendary Houston Oilers coach Bum Phillips, filled the role starting in 1989. Like Joe Collier, Wade Phillips has enjoyed a tremendous NFL career in coaching. Phillips started in the 1970s with the Houston Oilers. And get this, he was the Rams defensive coordinator when they made Super Bowl 53 in the 2018 season. That's a long time to be in any profession, especially the NFL. The 1989 Broncos returned the franchise to glory. The team went 11-5 and earned home field advantage throughout the playoffs. They won a close divisional playoff game against the Steelers in which Merrill Hodge became the first opposing running back to rush for 100 yards against the Broncos' defense that season. 
Denver again played the Cleveland Browns in the AFC Championship game at Mile High Stadium. The Broncos built a 24-7 lead in the third quarter. And like in 1987, the Browns climbed back into the game. Cleveland scored two touchdowns to pull within three, but Denver scored three times in the fourth quarter to put the game away by a fairly wide margin, 37-21. The Broncos headed to the Super Bowl for the third time in four seasons. This time, they faced Joe Montana and the San Francisco 49ers, in Super Bowl 24. The 49ers were defending champions and demolished their opponents in the NFC playoffs. The 49ers' closest NFC playoff game that year was decided by 27 points. That was a 30-3 win in the NFC Championship. In Super Bowl 24, the 49ers scored two touchdowns in each quarter against the Broncos and won 55-10. to 10. It's way too simplistic to look at those Broncos teams and say they lost three Super Bowls rather than looking at the achievement of winning three AFC championships in a four-year period. So what do Carl and the Broncos think about when they look back on the success that they had and how do they define those teams that they were on? Every play, every game, you do everything you possibly can to win that game. That was our approach. When when Pat Bowlen bought the team from Edgar Kaiser, uh, he came in and established cornerstones for our team that we were there to serve the community and we were there to win championships. If you didn't buy into that, if you weren't part of that movement, you didn't stay there very long. Every single game, every single week, we were given everything we had. If you if you asked Pat Bowlen at the start of the season, and, and they always did, you know, what's what's your record going to be this year, Pat? And he'd always say 16-0. Our commitment was to win each game. We were a team that kept our foot on the pedal all the time. We played as a team. We won as a team. We lost as a team. So going in uh, and losing those Super Bowls the way we lost them, that, it broke our hearts at the time. But uh, at this point, I look at it and I understand why we lost uh, in each of those situations. And in each of those situations, you know, yes, we could have done some things differently. And I think a couple of them we could have won, but we didn't. It's a tough pill to swallow. I've been retired for 25 years, but it's, it still frustrates me. We had opportunities. Uh, we, we didn't, we didn't uh, capitalize. The Broncos never made it back to the Super Bowl during Carl's outstanding 12-year NFL playing career. Wade Phillips, who we just noted, coached for over 40 years in the NFL, recently made a statement about Carl on his Twitter account. Phillips said Carl Mecklenburg was, quote, the best inside linebacker pass rusher combo that I've ever coached. No one else has ever come close to having that kind of talent, unquote. That's coming from a guy who coached from the 1970s through 2019. Carl Mecklenburg has been retired from the game for quite a while now and works as a public speaker. If uh, people want to get in contact with me, they can do it through my website. Like I said, I'm a professional speaker. I'm a teamwork and leadership speaker. I talk about teamwork, courage, dedication, desire, honesty, and forgiveness, goal setting, 
universal keys to success that I learned in the NFL. Doing a lot of online Zoom meetings at this point, but I'll be back to speaking here when this COVID thing goes by. So if I can help anybody out with their company, with their association, with their school, I'd love to have that opportunity. You can reach out to Carl about speaking engagements through his website, carlmecklenburg.com. You can also get an autographed copy of his book, Heart of a Student Athlete, and even order a signed Broncos jersey. Carl played his entire career for the Denver Broncos. Those of you who are Broncos fans or followed the NFL in the 1980s can probably guess that he's a member of the Broncos Ring of Fame. He was inducted in 2001 along with his longtime teammate, safety Dennis Smith. Carl says it's friendships with people like Smith that he cherishes today. We had a blast. I mean, like I said, we were a team. And, and when you're a, a part of a, of a team like that, you can't help but have many long-term friendships out of those years. Some of my best friends are guys that, that I lined up with. Dennis Smith, uh, great, great individual. Jim Ryan, great individual. The, the list goes on and on and on. But guys I would trust with anything and wonderful human beings. So that piece of teamwork and understanding that you can accomplish more as a group instead of as an individual, you know, carries over. It carries over into family life. It carries over into community life. It carries over into business life. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Game Before the Money podcast. And special thanks to Carl Meglenberg for being on the show. Please subscribe to the Game Before the Money podcast on your favorite podcast app. And check out some of our previous episodes. A recent From the Vault episode featured another Broncos Ring of Fame member, Goose Gosselin. Transcriptions of the Game Before the Money podcast are available at thegamebeforethemoney.com. Transcriptions are powered by our transcription partner, Sonics. S-O-N-I-X. Visit sonics.ai to learn more. Music and sound effects including fictional news segments, are written and produced by Eleven Productions.